You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Turn now to John chapter 19. That was the passage that we read. We're going to be looking at part of the passage that we read together at the beginning. And before we begin, we'll ask the Lord's blessing on our time here. Our gracious Father, we pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to your word and grant to us understanding and allow us to see Christ today in all of his glory and the glory of his cross and what he has done for us. And we pray that you would fill our hearts with adoration and praise for him. And then we would walk away from here changed by your word with a deeper and more profound understanding of what Christ has done for us. Bless this time of our study, preaching, our hearing of your word to the glory of the name of Christ our King. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, we have a lot of ground to cover this morning, so uh, I'm going to dispense with any kind of introduction which might serve to capture your attention or to make you even remotely interested in what I'm about to say. That violates one of the rules of good preaching. But we can just abandon that now that we've abandoned one of the rules of good preaching. We can abandon hope, all ye who enter here, of hearing anything that might reach any kind of a standard of good preaching this morning. So we're going to dive right into our text, right into our text. We finished last week in the middle of verse 25, looking at the soldiers who had gambled away the garments of the Lord Jesus Christ, casting lots for his clothing. We have looked at, we're looking at the events surrounding the crucifixion, and we've looked at the at the controversy that surrounded the sign and the wording over the sign that Pilate wrote on the cross. And then we looked at that act that fulfilled Scripture, which was the soldiers casting lots for the clothes of the Lord Jesus. And now today we pick it up in verse 25, and there are, actually in the middle of verse 25, and there are two things that we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at the, the four women who were witnesses and eyewitnesses to the crucifixion. And then we're going to look at all seven of the sayings of the Lord Jesus Christ from the cross in the order that he said them. So those four women and then all seven of the seven sayings of Jesus that he uttered from the cross. So you can see that we have quite a lot of ground to cover. So let's begin with looking at these four women who are eyewitnesses in verse 25. Uh, Verse 25 begins, Therefore the soldiers did these things, referring to the casting of of lots for the garments of Jesus, which fulfilled the scripture. But standing, verse 25 says, But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his brother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Before we go into each one of these ladies, I want you to notice, first of all, that there was four women who did this. This was four women who gathered around the cross of the Lord Jesus. Uh, by this time, all of the disciples had fled. So the 11 men, which we would think might be at the cross and guarding the Lord Jesus, or at least interested in his death, they have all gone away by this point. And what remains are these four women uh, that are mentioned here who gathered around and stayed with Jesus all the way to the end. And I think there's something to be said here for the the devotion and the adoration and the commitment that this would uh, this, that this would describe concerning those four ladies. There's something I don't know if all four of these women faced the same kind of fear that the rest of the disciples faced. In fact, we don't know if maybe they even faced the threat of the same danger that the other disciples felt that they faced. When the crowd came to get Jesus and arrest him, the disciples most certainly felt fearful enough that they fled and left because they had every reason to fear for their lives. They were the ones who had been teaching alongside of Jesus and even had performed miracles in his name and uh, done things with Jesus and spent three years with Jesus. Uh, They probably had reason to fear for their lives. But these four women, we don't know if they felt the same level of threat that the 11 disciples felt, but they stayed with Jesus all the way to the very end. And that says something about their devotion and their love for him and their commitment to him. And I think that there is something there that is worthy of our emulation for us to follow. Where were the eleven disciples during all of this? To just review quickly, remember the eleven, Judas had hanged himself. He was already, his neck was a few inches longer by this point the next day anyway. He had hanged himself uh, late that previous night or early that next, uh, early that morning. So Judas was dead and gone. After the eleven had gone with Jesus to the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Roman soldiers came from the west out of the city of Jerusalem into the Garden of Gethsemane, those disciples, the most natural course for them to flee would have been east up over the Mount of Olives and down the road that led off to Bethany. Bethany is where Lazarus and Mary and Martha lived, and they were friends of that family and had stayed there on a number of occasions. So we can only speculate that those disciples, when they fled the Garden of Gethsemane, would have went east into the town of Bethany about two miles away and probably stayed in that city for the events that would unfold that next day. 
We do know that John and Peter followed Jesus back into the city of Jerusalem following that crowd, and John and Peter eventually got access into the courtyard of Caiaphas and Annas, the high priest. Remember that? And then Peter, after Peter had denied the Lord, it said that when Jesus looked at him and made eye contact, Luke says, Peter went out from there and wept bitterly. So now we are left with John. We don't know for certain where Peter is at. We know that he is gone. We know that the rest of the disciples have fled. And so now we are left with John at the crucifixion. And John is there because he mentions it in verse 26. He mentions himself in the way that he typically refers to himself in this gospel as the disciple or he whom Jesus loved. The disciple whom Jesus loved. You look down at verse 35 of chapter 19 where John writes, And he who has seen has testified and his testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe. Now that's John's little way of saying that the author of this gospel, who calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved, was an eyewitness of the events of the crucifixion. Now there were also four other eyewitnesses, and all four of these are women. So let's cover these four women here just just briefly. The significance of these four women really doesn't rest here with um, the list in connection with crucifixion, but their significance in the story is going to come into play when we get into the resurrection accounts in chapters 20 and 21. That's where we see them kind of, of coming in here, and it's important to keep them straight. But we are introduced to them here in chapter 19 as four eyewitnesses. And the first one is Mary, the mother of Jesus. Oh, and one other thing. There are two other lists of these witnesses, one in Matthew chapter 27, verse 55 and 56, and one in Mark 15, verses 40 and 41. So Matthew, Mark, and John all give a list of these four women. And what's interesting is if you... You really don't know the details about any one of them without looking at all three lists together. It is when you put all three lists together and you begin to harmonize them that you can see who these people are. Because you'll notice that John gives a detail, Mary, mother, sister. Uh, sorry. Read what he says. The sister of Mary, Jesus' mother. His mother's sister was there at the cross. But it's not until you compare that with Matthew and Mark that you start to understand who that was. And it's not until you compare Matthew and Mark that you understand who the wife of Clopas was. So you put them all together and here are the details that you get. The first one is Mary, Jesus' mother. Now she was there. Matthew and Mark don't mention Mary being there. doesn't mean she wasn't. doesn't mean John was wrong. just means that they give details that uh, John doesn't. And John gives a detail that Mary and Matthew, sorry, Mark and Matthew, Mary didn't write a gospel. Matthew and Mark don't give. And I promised you an introduction. You'd be confused. Are you confused yet? The best part's coming up. Okay, so John gives a detail that Matthew and Mark don't, namely that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was by the cross. And uh, in this list, and I think that John includes Mary here because one of the statements that John records has to do with Mary and giving Mary into the care of John. So John mentions that she was there. And she is called here the Lord's mother, verse 25, by the cross of Jesus were his mother, and this, of course, is the Virgin Mary. It's interesting that John doesn't mention, and nobody mentions, Joseph being at the tomb. And there is no mention of Joseph, in fact, any time after the childhood of Jesus. He is nowhere near the tomb or the, invention, uh, the, the events of the crucifixion or the tomb or in anything associated with the resurrection, which leads us to only speculate that at some time prior to Jesus beginning his earthly ministry, Joseph had probably died and left uh, Mary a widower and that she had married nobody else after that. So she was uh, a widower at this point because Joseph is not even mentioned here. Notice that John does not refer to her as the Virgin Mary. And this is something important to recognize in Scripture. She has never given that title, the Virgin Mary. Scripture affirms that she was a virgin when the Holy Spirit conceived the Lord Jesus in her. But Scripture never gives her the title, the Virgin Mary. Just Mary, the mother of Jesus. She was his mother in terms of his humanity and being born to her uh, in his incarnation. But she has never referred to as the Virgin Mary. The idea of the perpetual virginity of Mary, that she remained a virgin even after the birth of Jesus, is a Roman Catholic fiction. Because Scripture says that she had other children by Joseph, and Jesus had brothers. But uh, just to note, John refers to her as Jesus' mother, but never as the Virgin Mary, and nobody, nobody does. The second woman is Mary's sister, verse 25. His mother's sister was there. She is the second one. Now, who is his mother's sister? If you compare Matthew and Mark's list of these women, you find out that Mark gives the name of this woman. Her name was Salome. And Matthew notes that this woman was the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Who were the sons of Zebedee? That's James and John. James being one of the disciples and John being the author of this gospel. So that makes, as we have pointed out before, that makes Jesus the first cousins with John and James, the sons of Zebedee. So this is Salome. This is Mary's sister. 
and she was married to Zebedee. They had a fishing business. John and James were fishermen, and they uh, had the normal uh, family venture of fishing, uh, and that was their business, and these are two of the main disciples. That's Mary's sister. Now, the second, oh, you might ask, why doesn't John just say, my mom was there, or my mother was there? Why doesn't he do that? This is typical of John. John doesn't even name himself in this gospel. When John has to refer to himself, because the narrative virtually demands it, when John has to refer to himself, he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. That was John's way of kind of keeping his name and himself out of the out of the book entirely. John never mentions his brother James anywhere in the gospel. And so it is just like John to not even mention his mother's name, but to refer to her in a very deferential way as the sister of Mary. And that's Salome. The third person is the wife of Mary, the wife of Clopas. Uh, This man is called in one of the other Gospels, Cleopas. Mary is the wife of Cleopas. If you look at Mark's account, it says that she was the mother of James, the less, and Joseph. If you look at Matthew's account, he calls her the mother of James and Joseph. Now, we don't know anything about Joseph or Joseph, who's the shorter name of Joseph. We don't know anything about him, but we know that this James, whom Mark calls James the Less, was one of the disciples. Uh, what does the name James the Less mean? The name Less is kind of a, a signifier that you would put on somebody's name to either describe their stature, as far as their height, James the short one, or you would use it to describe his age. He was less in age than somebody else. It turns out there were two disciples among the disciples named James. There was James, the son of Zebedee, and then there was James the Less, or James the Younger, is how some translations translate it. They wouldn't have referred to him as James the short one or James the vertically handicapped or anything like that. They would have referred to him as James the less, meaning in terms of his age, and they wouldn't have used it as a designation of a stature, though it could be used that way. So we have two Jameses here. Now, if you're following, we have James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, and then we have Mary, who is the wife of Clopas, or sometimes called Cleopas, and she is the mother of James the less. If you look at the other list of disciples in the, in the Gospels, in the Synoptics, you find out that James the Less was the son of Alphaeus. Alphaeus being another form of the name Clopas or Cleopas. So Clopas is Cleopas is Alphaeus, and he is the father of James the Less. To add more confusion to it, Eusebius, who's not mentioned in Scripture, he was a historian, he says that this Clopas, Cleopas, Alphaeus, was Joseph's brother, Joseph the husband of Mary. If that is true, we don't know if it's true or not because it's not in Scripture. It is from a historian. If that is true, then that makes Jesus first cousins through Joseph with James the Less and his other cousin Joseph. So that means that he had two Jameses as the disciples who both would have been first cousins with Jesus. One of those James, James the Older, is the brother of John, the author of this Gospel. Now maybe that's true, maybe we don't, but here's what's important to remember is that this mother who is standing by the cross of Jesus was a Mary who was obviously very close to the family of Jesus, and she was the mother of one of the disciples of Jesus. So she is tied in there, and she knew Jesus, and she knew the family well. And then the fourth one mentioned here is Mary Magdalene. We find out from Luke chapter 8 a few things about this Mary Magdalene. We find out from Luke chapter 8 that this Mary Magdalene was a woman out of whom seven demons had come. She was also a woman, one of a number of women, uh, who provided for Jesus out of her own personal means, giving to him and his ministry, his itinerant ministry, uh, much financial support. Probably because she had been delivered from seven demons. So she was a woman who had experienced great deliverance and a miraculous deliverance at the hands of Jesus. And then she lived her life in continual uh, obedience and submission to that and following him and listening to his teaching. She believed in him as the Messiah and she contributed to him and to the disciples out of her personal means. This Mary is also one of the first, she is the first witness to the resurrection of Jesus. That's what makes her significant. Now there's a couple things about Mary Magdalene that are, Fiction, and we need to kind of dispel a couple of these. One of them, it has been believed that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute at one time. That she was a notorious sinner known for her penchant of breaking the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. There's nothing in scripture that suggests that that is true of Mary Magdalene. A couple weeks ago I went and watched that new movie out, Risen, about the resurrection of Jesus. And one of the historical details that they had wrong in that was that they had Mary Magdalene who was known for being a prostitute and who, after she met Jesus, repented of that and turned away from that. That is something that, look, you don't have to be a, a Dan Brown, Da Vinci Code reading, Gnostic Gospel reading wingnut to believe something like that, because there are actual Bible scholars who have believed that because they tie Mary Magdalene to the unnamed woman of immorality mentioned in Luke chapter 7, who repented 
and believed upon Jesus and washed his feet with her hair. That is sometimes believed that that's Mary Magdalene, but Scripture doesn't say that. And the other thing that we need to dispel, since we're talking about Dan Brown, Da Vinci Code, Gnostic Gospel reading, wingnuts, the other thing we need to dispel is the idea that Mary Magdalene and Jesus had any kind of sexual or intimate or inappropriate relationship, because there are people who say that. And then, of course, nothing short of blasphemous. So those are the four women, Salome, Mary, Mary, and Mary. Now, if you get the sense that Mary was a common name in first century Jerusalem, you're right. It was very common. There are seven or eight different Marys mentioned in the New Testament, and it has been estimated that more than half of the women had some form of the name Mary as one of their names in the first century. All right, now let's look at the seven sayings of the Lord Jesus. There were, those were the four women. Now let's look at these seven sayings. There's no individual gospel, none of the synoptics, and certainly not John, that give all seven of these sayings, uh, certainly not in the order in which they were said. Each one of these sayings tells us something different about the Lord Jesus, about His suffering, about His person, or about His work on the cross. So each one of these seven sayings is significant, and here they are. If you're going to put them all together, I'm going to give you all seven of them. Matthew and Mark each mention one of these seven sayings, and they both record the same saying, and that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, which we talked about last week. Luke gives three sayings, and John gives the other three sayings, and here are Luke's three sayings. Luke 23:34, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Luke 23:43, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. And Luke 23:46, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So Matthew and Mark mention one of the sayings. Luke gives three other ones. And then John gives the three that are before you here. Woman, behold your son. And then behold your mother. And I am thirsty. And it is finished. Those being the seven sayings. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to cover all seven of those. And we're going to put them in chronological order. And I'm going to cover them in the order in which they would have been spoken from the cross. Because as you take Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, you put them all together. You get a harmony of the Gospels. The order in which these were said becomes very clear. The first one is, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And Luke puts this before the soldiers gambled for the garments of the Lord Jesus. He puts it before that event. And the gambling of the garments being after that. And so it probably happened as or while Jesus was being nailed to the cross and being uh, stood up there. As part of the nailing of the hands and the feet to the cross, that's probably when Jesus spoke those words. And what we see here is the Lord Jesus, even in the midst of His suffering, in the midst of this anguish and this great pain, he is expressing here his heart of grace and, and forgiveness and love and condescension as he is willing even to forgive these enemies of his, the very ones who are murdering him. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Notice that Jesus never prayed that for Caiaphas, and he never prayed that for Pilate. Why didn't he? What were these soldiers doing? They were doing what they were doing really out of ignorance. As far as they were concerned and as far as they knew, This was a guilty criminal, justly condemned under Roman law. They were doing what they were told to do. They were following their orders. Another day at the job, another nine-to-five shift for one of the Roman soldiers. He prays for their forgiveness. What they were doing, they were doing with wicked motives, obviously, but they were doing it in ignorance. But not Pilate. Pilate knew full well that Jesus was innocent, and he declared such on multiple occasions, and he knowingly sent an innocent man to his death, unjustly under Roman law, Jesus never prayed for Pilate to be forgiven for what he did. And he certainly never prayed for Caiaphas to be forgiven for what he did because Caiaphas had even more light than Pilate. In fact, Jesus said to him, the one who delivered me, said to Pilate, the one who delivered me to you has more guilt. Why? Because Caiaphas did it under the full revelation of the Old Testament. Caiaphas, having seen some of the miracles, having interviewed some of the very people whom the miracles had been done on and for, that Caiaphas willingly and knowingly turned Jesus over to execution knowing not only that he was innocent, but that he was the Messiah, that he was the son of David, and that he was the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. Caiaphas did what he did with full knowledge. And there's probably very few people in the leadership structure of the nation of Israel who would have known all that Pilate or Caiaphas knew. But for the soldiers who did so in ignorance, he prayed for their forgiveness. The second statement was in Luke 23, 43, where Jesus said to the penitent thief on the cross, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, in the first statement, Jesus is expressing his willingness to forgive and his desire that these men who did so in ignorance would be forgiven. In the second statement, the Lord Jesus is actually acting in his kingly duties as the king of the Jews. That's with the very sign over his head read, the king of the Jews. He is acting in that role as one who has the king's keys of the kingdom. 
and can open the doors of his kingdom to anybody and let anybody in he wants. And he can close the doors of his kingdom and keep out anybody that he wants. He is acting in that capacity as the king of the Jews as he gives to the penitent thief permission to be with him that day in paradise. Now that penitent thief had come to understand, maybe because he saw Psalm 22 being acted out in front of him, maybe because he saw the manner in which Jesus was dying, he came to understand that the one hanging next to him on the cross was an innocent man, that he was indeed the king of Israel because that penitent thief said, Lord, remember me today when you come into your kingdom. And he understood Jesus was the king of the Jews. He was indeed what the sign said that he was. He was an innocent man, and he was dying probably in fulfillment of Scripture. And that man understood that he got what he was deserving, but Jesus was not getting what he deserved. And so that man repented. And Jesus there opened up the keys, uh, gave, uh, opened up the kingdom to this repentant thief. The third statement uttered from the cross is the one, the first one here in John in verse 26 and 27. Now I'm covering all seven of these, but I'm going to give more emphasis to the ones that John mentions here. And I know I say this often, but each one of these things could become a sermon in its own. I hope you understand that. There's tremendous theological significance here. My kids say to me, Dad, they don't call me Jim, Dad, you think everything can become a sermon on its own. And that is true, and I say that often, but sometime if the Lord tarries, we'll come back and visit all seven of these because these, these are just incredible statements and they tell us so much. The third one is here in verse 26 and 27. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved near, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. Now, this is Jesus. The first statement that he made, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. That is the Lord Jesus expressing his concern for his murderers. The second statement, you shall be with me today in paradise, is the Lord Jesus expressing his concern for those who are suffering with him. This third statement, behold your son, behold your mother, is Jesus expressing concern for his mother. So there is concern being expressed here for all of these different parties. And even in the midst of suffering the wrath of God and dying on a cross, the Lord Jesus here is concerned for those who are his, for his very own mother. Now, the disciple whom Jesus loved is none other than John, the author of this gospel. And we've demonstrated that on previous occasions, and I'm not going to demonstrate that now. But when Jesus calls her woman, he says to, uh, to Mary, to get her attention, woman, behold your son. He is pointing, I there not, they're not to himself, I do not believe, but to John. He is doing a, a reciprocal thing. Woman, behold your son, John. And to John, behold your mother, to Mary. And when Jesus addresses her as, a, as woman, don't think that there's any kind of lack of honor or reverence or dignity there. It's not a, it's not a flippant term of disrespect at all. Um, men, if you address your wife as woman, in today's culture that communicates something different than it would have been in that culture. Whenever I address my wife as woman, I always remind her that it was a term of honor in the first century and a term of dignity so that she doesn't feel like I'm singling her out for anything. So do that if you're going to address your wife as woman. And it was a dignifying and honoring way to refer to his mother, but notice that Jesus doesn't call her mother. He could have. He could have said mother, mom. He could have said that, but he doesn't. He refers to Mary as woman. Why is that? And I think, as some commentators have suggested, that the reason for that was that Jesus was intending in this very moment to remind Mary, you are not to view me as your son. You are to view me as your Messiah. There is a vast difference between those two things. Mary was not to relate to him or to think that she had some special position or place in heaven or that she got in on some grounds or because by virtue of her motherhood or by virtue of the fact that she gave birth to Jesus. She is not to think that she has access to him or has a relationship to him that is in any way different than you or than I have with him. We all come to him in the same way. And he is right there in that moment reminding her of that and settling that issue. She is not special in his eyes because she is his mother. She was given that task by God, yes. And we ought to honor her in the way the Scripture honors her, but not nearly the way that has been done, uh, for instance, in Roman Catholic circles. And by the way, this, this uh, little exchange here, woman, behold your son, behold your mother, that is understood in Roman Catholic theology to be Jesus giving Mary a position of being the mother of all of the disciples and thus the apostles. So rather than viewing it as Jesus committing Mary to John's care, Roman Catholics view this as Jesus committing John to Mary's care. And John being the only disciple that is there, and then they would argue, having committed John to Mary's care and oversight as his mother, that also applies to all of the other apostles. And since Peter is the head of the church, if Mary is the head of the disciples, and the disciples are the cornerstone of the church, then Mary is the mother of what? 
the church. And so that is how they give her that idea that she is the, the that's how they give people the idea that she is the co-mediatrix and that she has some special place in heaven and, and that she remained a perpetual virgin for her whole life and that she somehow has special relationship to Jesus, which is why we pray to her, they would say, rather than to Jesus, because we can't access Jesus, so we need to bring it to Mary, so Mary can bring it to Jesus, because she has a special relationship with him. All of that is a fiction, and all of that is the complete opposite of what we have here in this passage. What is Jesus doing? Not committing his wife, knowing that Joseph was, knowing that Joseph was uh, dead by this point, Jesus is committing the care of his mother into the hands of his most trusted, most beloved, probably his closest of all the disciples, his cousin John whom he had known since childhood, whom Mary knew, who was uh, Mary's nephew. He is committing Mary to his care because Joseph was dead. If Joseph was alive, it wouldn't make any sense for Jesus to commend John into Mary's care as he is dying. Now, this may seem like a mundane detail, but in reality what we see here is the Lord Jesus Christ, even in his moment of suffering, being concerned about his mother and taking care of business as he is dying on the cross, giving over into John's care his mother, whom he had probably cared for and overseen her care up to that point. Next, the fourth one, the fourth statement is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's recorded in Matthew chapter 27 and Mark chapter 15. We talked about this last week. It is a quotation from Psalm 22, verse 1. And uh, in that statement, Psalm 22, verse 1, when Jesus quotes that, he is, in, in essence, quoting the first verse of that psalm in order to indicate to all who are watching that the entire psalm is fulfilled in him. And we talked last week about how that is not an expression that the Father turned his back and abandoned the Son. There was no division in the Trinity there, and we ought not to think of it in those terms at all. Because the very point of the psalm that Jesus is quoting is in verse 24 of that psalm. He has not abandoned nor forsaken the one who is suffering. He has not turned his back on him. So Jesus is quoting that psalm to say, this psalm is fulfilled in me. And though, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Probably expresses a very real feeling of abandonment. It does not describe the essence of abandonment. It doesn't describe real abandonment. The Father was there with the Son, sustaining the Son with the Son while the Son was bearing the penalty for the, and the wrath of God. The Father did not abandon the Son at the pinnacle of His obedience to the Father. It did not happen. And the point of the psalm is quite the opposite. So we covered that last week. The fifth statement is the one here in John. Again, we're back to John. John 19.28, I am thirsty. Verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, to fulfill the scripture said, I am thirsty. That's the fifth statement. I am thirsty. That is an expression of very real physical suffering. I notice that spirits don't thirst, angels don't thirst, phantoms don't thirst. This is something that can only be experienced by somebody who had a real human body. And this exper- this expresses um, this expresses very real human suffering. Jesus had a body like unto ours, without being sinful, he suffered all of the weaknesses and frailties of humanity as it was without himself being sinful. But he certainly here experienced thirst. Now John says in verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been, my translation says accomplished, yours probably does too, it is the same word translated finished in the next statement. Jesus says it's finished. It's the same word. Jesus, knowing that all things had been finished, in order to fulfill Scripture, said, I thirst. And that phrase, in order to fulfill Scripture, it can be taken one of three ways. This is interesting. It can be taken to refer to the phrase before it. In other words, Jesus, knowing that all things had been accomplished to fulfill Scripture, then said, I am thirsty. Or it can be taken to refer to the phrase, I am thirsty. As if I were to say, Jesus, knowing that all things had been accomplished, in order to fulfill Scripture, said, I thirst. Or it can be taken both ways. And I think in typical John fashion, John probably means a reference to both. In other words, Jesus knew that all that needed to be fulfilled to fulfill Scripture had been accomplished. He knew that everything that needed to be done and finished had been finished. And now there was still one more Scripture that needed to be fulfilled. In order for Him to be able to fulfill all the Scriptures concerning His death, there was one left to be fulfilled. And that prophecy comes from Psalm 69, verse 21, where David writes, They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. See, that needed to be fulfilled. And Jesus knew that. And we know that Jesus was aware of Psalm 69 because the previous evening, John 15, Jesus quotes from Psalm 69, verse 4, when talking about being hated without a cause. Psalm 69, verse 4, Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. 
Those who would destroy me are powerful, being wrongfully my enemies. What I did not steal, I have to restore to them. And then Jesus quoted that psalm, which was written by David in reference to himself only a few hours earlier. And now he quotes that psalm again, or has that psalm in mind, when he, knowing the Scripture needed to be fulfilled, there was still one element. Somebody had to give him vinegar to drink. Somebody had to give him something sour to drink in order for Psalm 69, verse 21, to be fulfilled. And even his statement, I thirst, is itself a a, a recollection of Psalm 22 that we looked at last week. Verse 15, my strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. So that thirst that he experienced was a fulfillment of Psalm 22. And when he said, I am thirsty, what the soldiers did next fulfilled Psalm 69, verse 21. So in order for the Scripture to be fulfilled, so Jesus has a mind here to his murderers, forgive them, a mind to his sufferers, today you'll be with me in paradise, a mind to his mother, behold your son, son, behold your mother, and now he has a mind even to Scripture to make sure that the very last detail of his death should be fulfilled, he said, I thirst. And then what the Roman soldiers did in, in response to that was itself a fulfillment of Scripture. Verse 29, a jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it to his mouth. And that, of course, fulfilled Psalm 69. Now, that jar of sour wine there was one, it was, an, it was a cheap wine. It was an unrefined wine, much like wine mixed with vinegar in its early stages. It's something that the soldiers kept there for their own use, not necessarily for the use of the, of the criminals that they, were, that they were crucifying. If you're going to be there and hanging out and doing your job and you have the fun of killing a bunch of criminals, you might as well bring along a jar of wine and make a party out of it. We're going to gamble for their garments anyway. Let's have fun with it. That was the Roman soldier's mentality. And so they took that wine and they put it on a sponge and put it up to on a stick to the mouth of Jesus. And, of course, with his hands nailed to a cross, he wouldn't have been able to grab a cup or to drink out of a cup. And this would have been the easiest and uh, a way for him to, to drink something, and that is to suck as much as he could with his mouth as dry and his tongue probably swollen, to suck in as much as he could in order to quench his thirst. Now, he knew that by this time everything had been accomplished, everything had been fulfilled. And so he said, I thirst. Now, in your mind, you might be thinking, I remember somewhere reading that they offered him wine and he refused it. Remember that? Where does that come from? That's not the same thing as this. That was a different thing at the beginning of the crucifixion. John MacArthur in his commentary writes this. This, referring to John 19 here, the the wine that they gave him when he said, I thirst. This was the cheap sour wine that the soldiers commonly consumed. It was not the same beverage that the Lord had refused earlier. That beverage, which contained gall, was intended to help deaden his pain so he would not struggle as much while being nailed to his cross. Jesus had refused it because he wanted to drink the cup of the Father's wrath against sin in the fullest way that his senses could experience it. So the earlier, before they nailed him to the cross, they would give criminals a wine mixed with gall, which would kind of deaden their senses a little bit, keep them from squirming, make them easier to nail to the cross. Jesus refused that. Why? Because he wasn't going to squirm and he wasn't going to resist or flop around or try and get off of the cross. He was going again willingly as a victim, a volunteer victim to that cross in in our place. And so he didn't need to be deadened for that. And so he refused that so that he might drink in the full wrath of the Father through all of his senses. Having done that, having finished all of that, then he said, I thirst. And then they gave him wine, a different wine, not mixed with gall to drink. Now, the Roman soldiers, when they gave this to him, they were not trying to be compassionate. They were not trying to be nice. And they were not trying to fulfill Scripture. You know what they were trying to do? Prolong his life. That was their job. Their job was not to kill people quickly. Their job was not to show compassion. Their job was not to make sure that he got enough to drink. Their job was to exact the maximum amount of suffering over the longest period of time. And so they would do this for for those who suffered on the cross so that they could breathe easier, so that their tongues would not swell, so that their life would be extended, not to show compassion, certainly not to deaden any pain. They would give them just enough to keep them alive for a little bit longer, because that was their job. That was their goal. There's some irony in the fact here that Jesus is the one who said, I thirst. Listen to what Spurgeon says. Know you not that it was he who balanced the clouds and who filled the channels of the mighty deep? He said, I thirst. And yet in him was a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Yes, he who guided every river in its course and watered all the fields with grateful showers, he it was, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, before whom hell trembles and the earth is filled with its dismay, he whom heaven adores and all eternity worships, he it was who said, I thirst. Matchless condescension, from infinity 
of God to the weakness of a dying and thirsting man. There's some irony in that, is it not? The one who is the fountain of living waters would himself say, I thirst. Do you remember an incident from John chapter 4 when Jesus was traveling through Samaria and he sat down by a well and the woman came out to draw water? And what did he say to her? Give me a drink. And that started a whole conversation about what? Water, living water, being thirsty, and never thirsting again. And Jesus said to her in John chapter 4 verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. He said to her in 4 verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. In John 6 verse 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. That's his promise. You know why he can say to us that we will never thirst and that he will give us waters of living waters that will forever quench our thirst? You know why he can say that? Because he himself thirsted in our stead. This is the great doctrine of substitution. This is the glory of the cross. That one thirsted in our place. Do you understand that in Luke chapter 16, this idea of thirsting in a fiery tongue is acquainted with uh, the suffering of the rich man in torment? And he says in Luke chapter 16, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in the agony of flames. That would have been the lot of each and every one of us if Christ had not suffered and thirsted in our place. We thirst because of sin. He thirsted because he was made sin. And all of our sin was punished on him. And so he thirsted in our stead so that we might have the water of life. Spurgeon says this, Now remember, if Jesus had not thirsted, every one of us would have thirsted forever afar off from God with an impassable gulf between us and heaven. Our sinful tongues, blistered by the fever of passion, must have burned forever had not his tongue been tormented with thirst in our place. I thirst. Now there are two more. The sixth statement is, it is finished. And I think that these final two statements, it is finished, and Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. It seems from Scripture that these two sentences, one recorded by John, one recorded by Luke, they were said very close together, back to back, probably in sub, uh, one breath apart from each other. And it seems as if the, the statement, I thirst, was intended to give him something to drink so that he could wet his mouth and then be able to say something clearly for everybody to be able to hear. So the, 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 the wine that he was given served to make him able to say something very loudly, which is why Matthew in chapter 27, verse 50 says Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up the spirit. Mark says Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. They don't tell us what he cried or what he said, but it wasn't anguish. It was these two sentences. So I thirst. He got the, the wine. It wetted his mouth. And then he declared these two sentences back to back. The first one being, it is finished. Now, how do you preach on that phrase, it is finished? Do you have any idea what is in that sentence? There are some statements in Scripture that you read them, and I study them, and I get up here to preach them, and I think to myself, having explained what the text is and all the details of the text, that I can walk away from that feeling that I have done an adequate job and have explained it in its context, and we get it, and we can move on. There are some passages that are like that, like verse 25 with the four women. Do I really need to say anything else about that? I don't think so. I could go into a little bit more detail on a few of them, but I pretty much exhausted all that I could ever say about the nature and the identity of those two four women at the cross. But then there are some passages of Scripture where you feel as a teacher or a preacher, as a student of Scripture, that if I were given a thousand years and I were to preach ten sermons a day for a thousand years straight, I would still leave that passage having felt that I left more unsaid than I have ever said about it. Such is the statement it is finished. J.C. Ryle in his commentary on the passage says this, There is a depth about it, and we all must instinctively feel that depth, with a depth which probably no man has aligned to fathom. This remarkable expression in the Greek is one single word in a perfect tense. It has been completed. And it stands here in a majestic simplicity without note or comment from St. John, and we are left entirely to conjecture what the full meaning of it is. For 1,800 years, Christians have explained it as they best can, and some portion of its meaning in all likelihood has been discovered. Yet it is far from unlikely that such a word spoken on such an occasion by such a person at such a moment just before death contains depths which no one has ever completely fathomed. How do you preach on that? It is finished. What is the it? Is the it just one thing? Or is the it everything? Or is that one thing actually really everything? And I don't say that to be smirky or coy or mysterious or sound like a Gnostic teacher. I'm really just saying, is it is it just one thing that he accomplished? 
Or in that one thing did he actually accomplish so much more than we can ever possibly imagine? I'll try and lay out for you a few things that I think the it refers to and what has been done by Jesus. I, I think it describes not just what he accomplished in his death, but what he accomplished in his life. In that death and in those words, it is finished, I think that the Lord Jesus is saying that the great work of redemption has been done, been accomplished. You ask yourself, what does my salvation entail? It entails my election, my redemption, my adoption, my forgiveness, my uh, atonement, it, it, my new glorified body, new heavens and a new earth, forgiveness of sins, the provision of righteousness, all of that. All of that has been accomplished. Everything that, yours, everything that is entailed in your salvation, from eternity past all the way through to eternity future, a million years from now when you are praising God around the throne and all that God is doing in you and for you and the joys and the delights of heaven and everything between those two massive events, eternity past and eternity future, all of that has been accomplished. All the redemption has been done. A full atonement has been made. The wrath of the Father has been satisfied. The wrath against sin that you and I deserve, that has been propitiated. It's been satisfied. It's been taken away. And forgiveness has been granted to us so that now all of our sins are taken out of the way and there is no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And not just that, but all of the works of the devil have been destroyed. And his eternal doom has been secured. And he has triumphed over the court forces of darkness. He has seized back the deed for the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. All of it now belongs to him. The keys of the kingdom belong to him. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. Everything pertaining to my redemption and my forgiveness, all of that has been accomplished in his death. And not only did he do all of that in his death, but his life also accomplished something for me. That is to say that he has, he has provided for his people not just forgiveness of sins, but infinite and untainted and perfect righteousness. And this is the other side of the gospel. Not only has my sin been imputed to his account and all of it taken out of the, out of the way and forgiven, but he has provided for me the righteousness that I need to stand in the presence of God. How did he do that? By living 33 years and obeying the Father in everything. By loving the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, by loving his neighbor as himself, by obeying every commandment and every deed and everything that the Father gave him to do, he was completely obedient in all things. Now listen, if all that Jesus provided for me was the forgiveness of sins, just having my sins taken away, that wouldn't be sufficient to gain me entrance to heaven. Because I might have no sins on my record, having been forgiven of all my sins, but neither would I have any record of obedience. What do I need? I need a perfect record of obedience before God. I need positive righteousness. That positive righteousness is provided for us through the death of Christ. So not only everything pertaining to my salvation, but everything pertaining to my righteousness and that provision that I need so that all of his acts of obedience are credited to my account. So that in the courtroom of God, it's not just that I am innocent of all charges, but I also have a record of perfect obedience to all things pertaining to the law of God and pertaining to his standards of righteousness. All given to me because of what Christ has done. That's what's been finished. Further, all of the types and shadows of the Old Testament have been fulfilled. That was finished. All the sacrifices and the feasts and the animals and the offerings and festivals and all of that, everything that was a foreshadowing, either explicitly or implicitly, everything that pointed forward to the Lord Jesus Christ, all of those things, which all of those sacrifices, which were prophecies in motion, looking forward to the one great sacrifice, He has fulfilled all of that. And there's no need for a temple anymore. That has been done away. Why? Because now you and I are the temple of God. And His temple is all over this world. He's building His church. And we are being built up with living stones, each one of us, so that we are a dwelling of God, in not only individually, but also corporately, because we are the temple of God. So the temple has been done away with. And what about the priesthood? Priesthood, finished. Why? Because now we do not have a high priest who enters in to the veil once a year to offer a sacrifice which can never atone or cleanse for sin and can never cleanse a guilty conscience. But now we have a high priest who has entered into the Holy of Holies once and for all and offered not blood that was not his own, but blood that was his own as a perfect and pure and spotless Lamb of God so that you and I could stand in the presence of God completely atoned for because that one final and full and sufficient and infinitely valuable sacrifice has been made. So all of that's been taken out of the way. All the prophecies regarding Jesus finished. His first coming, his birth, the place of his birth, whom he was going to be born to, how he would be born, how he would live, where he would be raised, the miracles that he would do, all of his acts of compassion, all of those prophecies fulfilled. Every detail regarding his death on the cross has been fulfilled. Being, being crucified between two thieves, being buried in a rich man's tomb, being with those thieves in his death, uh, having his side pierced, his hands and nails pierced, uh, his hands and feet pierced, the thirst and the quenching of that and his joint, joints being Bones being out of joint, all of that is fulfilled. 
Every last detail that the Old Testament said that we should anticipate in the coming Messiah, all of it, finished. Is that glorious? But there's more. What else did he finish? Everything that the Father gave him to do. Jesus said every work that he did was the Father doing the work through him, and he did all that the Father gave him to do, and he left nothing of all that the Father charged him without fulfilling it. I can get to the end of my life after 80 or 90 years, and if I were to live to be 250 or a million years old, I would never be able to say it is finished, that I have finished it. Because everything I touch and everything I do is incomplete at best. And it's never finished. And no matter how long we live, we will never finish what God has given us to do. Because we will always leave more undone than we have ever done. But Jesus is the only one who can get to the end of his life, get ready to breathe his last, look at his entire life, all of his acts of obedience, all of the deeds that the Father gave him to do, every act of compassion, every healing, every resurrection, every gracious thing, every act of love to his neighbor, and be able to say of all of it, it is all finished. Everything that the Father gave me to say, he had, he had said. Everything that the Father gave him to do, he had done. And he had done it all completely, perfectly, and fully. So he could say it is finished. And beyond that, his sufferings were finished. The wrath had been poured out, and the worst of his sufferings were over. John says when Jesus knew that all things had been accomplished, all things had been finished, he knew that the wrath of the Father had been born. He had provided a perfect sacrifice. He had provided perfect atonement, an infinite sacrifice of infinite value, able and perfectly sufficient to cover the sins of any and all who will believe. No matter who that might be, it is a perfect sacrifice. That has been finished. And the suffering was over. And now the nails that pierced his hands and the nails that pierced his feet were themselves minor discomforts compared to the wrath that he bore on the cross in our stead. As he bore an eternity and an infinity of the sin debt of his people, he bore that on the cross. That suffering was immense and enormous, that agony. The discomfort of the nails and the hands and the feet, a discomfort. That's all it was. So now the suffering is done. And he can say it is finished. Let it not escape your notice, friends, that when Jesus says it is finished, that means that there is nothing else that needs to be done. No purgatory, no suffering, no condemnation, no deeds done in righteousness, no good works, nothing. What does God demand of us since it has all been finished? Repentance and faith. We turn from our sin and we believe upon this finished work. And if I approach the throne of God and think, in my delusional sinful state, that my good works and my good deeds and all my acts of penance or anything else that I do are going to contribute in one iota, one bit, to His merit or to my eternal salvation, that is the grandest statement of blasphemy that could possibly be uttered. Why? Because it is finished. There's nothing else that needs to be done. And so we are able to rest, repent and believe and rest that He has done everything taken sin out of the way. He's fulfilled the prophecies. He's fulfilled the types and the shadows. And He has provided infinite righteousness for His people. He, on the cross, perfectly secured the salvation of all His sheep, of all those whom the Father gave to Him, whom He said, will come to Me, and I will give them eternal life. That is finished. It's a glorious thing, is it not? The seventh and final statement that Jesus uttered was, Father, into Your hands I commit My spirit. Those words are a quotation from Psalm 31, verse 5. It is an expression of prayer of commitment and trust and faith in His Father. And in that statement, Jesus is taking language right out of the Psalms and the very last words to come out of the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Word incarnate, is nothing else than the Word written. Psalm 31, verse 5. Father, into Your hands I commit My spirit. And that was His final statement. And when He had said that, He gave up His spirit. He breathed His last. Look at verse 30. When Jesus received the sour wine, He said it is finished. And He bowed His head and gave up his spirit. Two things, he bowed his head, and second, he gave up his spirit. That phrase, he bowed his head, literally means, it was literally the phrase that was used to describe somebody who'd lay their head down and go to sleep. In fact, you remember when Jesus said, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head? Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. The very same phrase, lay his head. It was a phrase that was used to describe somebody laying down and going to peaceful sleep. So it was almost as if during the life of the Lord Jesus, he had no place to lay his head. There was no place, no time, no point for rest. Why? His work needed to be done. But once he said it is finished, he could lay down his head and rest in the bosom of the Father. He laid down his head. Leon Morris writes this, The resting place for his head that he did not have on earth, he found on the cross. And the second thing is he gave up his spirit. Now that's language that is used nowhere else in Scripture of death, that he gave up his spirit. 
It's not used anywhere else of anybody else that they gave up their spirit. Why is that? Because this is the language of one who is in control of giving up his spirit. He is the one who gives it up. It was not taken from him. You can say of you and I that, that we wait for death. Jesus wasn't waiting for death. He's in control of the time of his death and the manner of his death and the very moment of his death. And once it had all been finished and the price had been paid and he could say it is finished, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. It was an act of his own sovereign and voluntary will that he would die when he died. It is the very language that we find in John chapter 10 when Jesus said, For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Those are not the words of a victim. Those are not the words of one who stands and waits for death to seize upon him. You and I wait for death. We don't control the time of our own death. We wait for it to come. And we, it may come this afternoon. You and I may languish in a, in a deathbed for days or weeks on, months on end, never knowing when death will seize upon us. But it wasn't that way for the Lord Jesus. He chose the moment that he would die. When it was finished, he could have died earlier. He could have he could have died or given up his spirit at a point during his worst agony, when the pain was at the worst and the agony was at the worst. He could have done that and welcomed the sweet release of death to end all the suffering. But he didn't do that. He didn't do it until what? Until it was finished. Once it was finished, and he had finished that work, then he gave up his spirit and he died. The other criminals were alive when the Roman soldiers came to them, but Jesus was not. And it was surprising that he died as fast as he did, given that he started hanging on the cross somewhere around mid-morning, 10 o'clock or so, somewhere in that neighborhood. And this is about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the gospel say, about the ninth hour. And Jesus is already dead. And that was very unique. It was not uncommon for crucifixion victims to hang on crosses for days. Because as I said, they would try and drag out and prolong the death as long as possible. But when the Roman soldiers got to Jesus, he was already dead. Why? Because at the time of his own choosing, he gave up his spirit. And there's an allusion here, I think, to the wording of Isaiah 53. We've seen a number of fulfillments of Isaiah 53 already in this passage. There is a prophecy in Isaiah 53 that kind of describes similar this, this event in similar language. Isaiah 53, verse 12 says, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death. That's odd language. He poured out himself to death. Meaning he is the one who was offering himself and pouring himself out to death. It wasn't death that seized upon him at a time of somebody else's choosing. It was death that he entered into and died at the time of his choosing. He poured out himself to death. And he died himself, a volunteer. So those are the seven statements. And that is the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. It was a substitute for us. It was a sufficient sacrifice for all of our sins. And it is finished. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.